Well, please open with me uh, in your Bibles now to Psalm 130. Psalm 130, the last of our studies in the Songs of Ascents. Psalm 130, let's give attention once again to the word of the living God. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. This is the word of the living God. May he be pleased to write its truth on our hearts this evening. On the night of May 5th, 1940, The British submarine HMS Seal was returning from a dangerous mission in enemy waters. And in the dead of night, it struck a mine. And the submarine was crippled. She sank into the murky depths like a stone, and her stern stuck fast in the mud on the ocean floor. For the next 23 hours, the crew desperately tried to dislodge the vessel, expending every possible effort. But the clock was ticking. Their oxygen was running out. And finally, they realized that it was futile. They were utterly helpless. There was nothing humanly possible to save themselves, and they were suffocating fast. Fifty-nine men resigned to certain death in their iron coffin in the depths, except one. The captain, Rupert Lonsdale, was a Christian man, and he summoned the crew in that hour of desperation And he led them in prayer, acknowledging their helplessness 
unless God was pleased to have mercy and save them. Within minutes, the ship safely floated to the surface. The psalmist in Psalm 130 says, Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. And he describes a situation no less dire than the crew of HMS Seal. He is in the depths. He is aware of his helplessness. All he can do is cry out to God to save him. And as we shall see, the psalmist and all believers have a similar story. It is a story of an ascent from the depths, from a state of sin to a state of forgiveness. And that's what our final song for the journey is all about. Psalm 130 is a song for the forgiven. And I'd like us to walk through it together this evening, considering several headings as we go, and you'll see them uh, printed there in the bulletin. First, we want to consider the believer's depths. The believer's depths. And I draw your attention again to the first two verses. A song of ascent. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. As with all of these songs for the journey we've been thinking about this week, the title of this song is A Song of Ascent, literally a song of goings up. But there's something particularly interesting and striking about this title in this particular composition. Many scholars, many Reformed scholars, Uh, have taken the psalm titles that we find published in the Psalter to be part of the inspired Hebrew text. And when we do that with Psalm 130, we find that the title runs into the first verse. And so the original literally reads, A Song of Ascents Out of the Depths. That's what this song is. It's about ascending from the depths. And that is exactly the structure and purpose of the psalm because it relates for us a personal journey from the depths of despair to the heights of blessed hope. It is about goings up from the deep and ascent from the depths. It's a beautiful description of our shared Christian experience and it begins with this cry. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Well, what are the believer's depths here? Well, different suggestions have been made. Many writers confine these depths to the struggles of the Christian life. When you feel depressed or troubled about some life circumstance, you know, like getting trapped in a submarine, that kind of thing. Now, certainly that can be an application of this psalm to life's trials. But I want to submit to you this evening that from the context, 
It's clear that the depths to which the psalmist primarily refers are the depths of your personal sin. Verses 3 and 4 speak of marking iniquities. Verses 7 and 8 speak of redemption from iniquities. The whole psalm is a gospel song, a song of redemption from sin. And so if the heights to which the psalmist ascends by the conclusion of the song are described in terms like mercy, abundant redemption, redemption from all iniquities, then surely the depths from which he came must also be understood in terms of sin and iniquity. So this cry from the depths with which the psalm opens is a literal SOS. Save our souls. And if you were to experience this abundant redemption, which the psalmist experiences by the end of the psalm in verse 7, then you must first be made conscious of the seriousness of your spiritual condition. That is to say, you must realize that by nature, you are in the depths Not just intellectually that you should grasp this, but experientially. You need to have a deep sense of your estate of sin and misery. Our catechism, uh, question 19, says, All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries in this life to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. Have you come to the place in your life yet where you are made deeply conscious of the misery of your state by nature, of the sinfulness of your sin, that spiritually speaking you are in the depths Maybe there's someone here this evening and you're enduring this. You're in a state of misery and you know you're in misery. Maybe you're putting on a smile for everyone, but you know that inside all is not well. You are in the depths. Sin is not taken seriously in our world. I think it's fair to say that it's not taken seriously in the professing church at large. But let me assure you, friends, it is taken very seriously by God. And if you think of yourself to be on the heights, then you're not going to cry out to God. You won't do that. You'll feel secure and say, I don't need God. I'm okay. And so until you are made aware of the depths of your sin as the psalmist was, you will never cry out to the Lord. And you will sit tight in your submarine on the sea floor, until you're smothered by the CO2 of your iniquities. That is your state this evening if you are out of Christ. And if you are a Christian, then you have to some degree tasted this misery when you were first brought to repentance unto life and cried out to God, from the depths. It's been wonderful to hear some testimonies at campfire this week, really doing what the psalmist does. I I cried out to God 
and he heard me. And in an analogous way, this crying to God continues to be the experience of the believer as he or she daily battles with personal sin and often feels defeated and cries out like the Apostle Paul in Romans seven twenty four, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And thus, Driven to God in great need, the psalmist pleads in verse 2 that God's ears, think of that, God's ears would be attentive to his cry of supplication. Isn't it marvelous that God has ears? Now, I'm not making a theological statement there, okay? It's, It's a metaphor. But God's ears are open that they're constantly open to the cry of his people. Uh, I know that some of you here have enjoyed Camp More this week uh, because you brought baby monitors with you, right? I remember those days well. Uh, You put your kids down for a nap or for the night. You go downstairs or into the common area to steal a few minutes, hopefully, of some fellowship. Um, And while you're having your fellowship there, all the time, your ears are attentive to the baby monitor, right? And yes, you're enjoying the fellowship with friends and family, but there's that constant ear open for the first stirrings of a child. And you hear the slightest peep, and you jump into action, and you run to settle your crying child. Well, imagine, my friends, as it were, countless millions and billions of baby monitors up in heaven. And God's ear is attentive to every single one of them. Every single one of them. He hears your cry. His ears are open. And he jumps to action when he hears the slightest peep from each of his children. 1 Peter 3.12 For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's the believer in the depths, conscious of the misery of his sin and crying out to God. But we move from the believer's depths to consider, secondly, the believer's confession. The believer's confession. Have a look again at verse 3. Verse 3. If you, Lord should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist here continues to talk about the depths in these verses, but he does it in such a way as to prepare the ground for his ascent from them. And here in verse 3, we find contrition for sin. That is to say, a deep inward felt experience where the sheer gravity of his situation is made known to his soul. And his dilemma is stated starkly in verse 3, isn't it? He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Here we have a succinct statement of the depths of the human condition. The darkness of the depths gets darker before it gets brighter. The psalmist isn't just talking about himself anymore, you'll notice. 
He's saying that this gloomy condition of being in the depths is universal. It is something that all of us here were born into. Who on earth could stand? All of Adam's seed are by nature in the depths, in a state of sin and misery. And and so he asks this rhetorical question. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? The NIV, I think, puts it well. If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sins. If you kept a record of our sins. You see, the psalmist is envisaging a tally sheet, a ledger. If the Lord's ears were open, then his eyes are wide open as well. And he sees men in their sins. Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all their paths. Friends, the psalmist has cried out to God to rescue him from the depths. But ironically, here he's making a weighty argument why the Lord might not answer his prayer. The written record of his sins speaks against his ever being heard by God. In other words, he realizes he's undeserving. Let me ask again, have you yet been brought to the place in your life where you appreciate with the psalmist that if God were to deal with you according to your personal sins, according to the strict justice of his law, that you would be condemned in a nanosecond? Have you come to realize that yet? We read in Romans 3.19, we know that whatever the law says... It says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Friends, the writer of this psalm is saying, by the same spirit of inspiration that inspired Paul centuries later, that if you try this evening to stand righteous before God by your own efforts to keep the law, you will perish. You will perish. And your depravity is radical. It goes to the very roots. You're in the depths And any ascent from those depths will have to come from outside of yourself. You cannot ransom yourself. You have nothing with which to pay. You cannot redeem yourself like you redeem coupons at the store. There's no coupon of human clipping that you can offer God with your bill that he's going to honor. And so friends, if you're not a Christian this evening, You are helplessly stuck in the thick mud of your iniquities until someone reaches down into the depths and raises you up. Are you experiencing the consequences of your sin? Someone here tonight and you're miserable and you know you're miserable. Your life's a mess. 
You're in the depths. Then, my friends, see this text this evening as God's summons to you to look beyond the grief and the misery your sin has brought to the grieving that it brings God's Holy Spirit so that you will humble yourself and confess and repent for your sin. So we've seen that the believer's depths leads to the believer's confession And that leads, thirdly, to the believer's forgiveness. Forgiveness. Look again at verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Friends, this is the turning point in the psalm. And it's a glorious turning point. The ascent from the depths begins. And notice that your ascent from the depths is found in the ifs and buts of verses 3 and 4. First, there's a glimmer of hope, I think, in that word if in verse 3. If you marked iniquities. In other words... Maybe just a possibility that God might in fact not mark your iniquities. And then there's this beam of glorious light in that word, but, in verse 4. The Hebrew literally reads, but with you, forgiveness. But with you, forgiveness. What can possibly be the basis of this forgiveness that is with God. Well, there's a hint in verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? I've mentioned that this is a rhetorical question. The assumption, of course, that the psalmist makes is, well, no representative of the human race can stand before God. And that's the human problem, right? You and I cannot stand before God. You need a man who can stand before God for you. One for whom, whenever the Lord marks iniquity, he can say to God, I have committed no iniquity, nor was any deceit found in my mouth. 1 Peter 2.22, I wonder who we're talking about. You see, what the psalmist saw in prophecy, we now know in fulfillment. There is only one who could stand, and that is Jesus Christ. If you or I stand before the rigors of the law, we are finished. But... If another stands as our representative, one who did meet all the rigors of the law, then we can. Then we can stand before God. And so on this basis, the psalmist says, with the Lord is forgiveness. It's with someone else. With the Lord is forgiveness. Christ is righteous. I am not. His righteousness clothes me. I can stand before God in Him. But as they say on TV, wait, there's more. There's more. Because the word translated forgiveness in the Hebrew means a judge's 
pardon of iniquity based on the satisfaction of a substitute. Based on the satisfaction of a substitute. It's a special word in the Bible that only God gets to use. God is only ever the subject of this verb. It speaks of God's pardoning man's debt by shedding the blood of a sacrificial substitute. You see, friends, for God, forgiveness is not some kind of abstract, just, just letting it go. Well, we'll just, we'll just forget about all of that sin stuff. No, God never pretends like your sins never happened. They did happen, and you know that as well. Satisfaction for iniquity must be made by the shedding of blood because God's justice demands it. And this is what Jesus Christ has given us on the cross. So to sum up, there is forgiveness with you, he says. And that forgiveness is possible on this twofold basis. The first basis is a man standing before the Lord with no iniquities to mark. And this is Christ's active obedience. Perfect conformity to God's law on your behalf and mine. And the second basis is the blood sacrifice of a substitute. And this is Christ's Passive obedience. He has paid the full price of the wrath of God for his people. And friends, what depths he endured. What depths he endured to bring you up from your depths. Well, does the prophet Daniel say in Daniel 9.9, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness even though we have rebelled against him. The psalmist could certainly echo those words. Can you echo those words this evening? The believer's depths and confession and forgiveness brings us fourthly to the believer's fear. And that's in the second half of verse 4 where you have this interesting statement. He says, there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. Might not be the word uh, that you were expecting in that verse. Samus has experienced the depths of misery that sin brings, and he's been brought to cry out in confession and repentance and faith, and he's experienced the Lord's gracious forgiveness. What's his response now going to be? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved, perhaps. That might be a word that we think would go in there, right? With you there is forgiveness that you may be cherished, that you may be served. That's not what he says. That you may be feared. Feared. I wonder, does that seem odd to you? If the psalmist had written... But with you there is eternal wrath against sin that you may be feared. Okay, that that seems to fit, right? We might see the connection. Or perhaps with you there is justice 
then you may be feared. Well, that maybe seems to fit better as well. It may seem an unusual result of forgiveness. Those words don't seem appropriate bedfellows in the same sentence. So what does the psalmist mean? Well, friends, the believer's fear is not that spirit of bondage to fear that Paul speaks of in Romans 8.15, that judicial terror of God as judge who will condemn me for my iniquity. That is the fear that comes when you're in the depths. But we know the psalmist has been brought up from the depths, and so that's not what he means. He means the filial fear of reverencing God as our Father. A holy, reverential Fear is in view. The Dutch Puritan Wilhelmus Abrakel describes it this way. He says, filial fear is a holy inclination of the heart generated by God in the hearts of his children, whereby they, out of reverence for God, take careful pains not to displease him and earnestly endeavor to please him in all things. That's the believer's fear. And and this fear, friends, is not some kind of one-off exercise of drawing close to God. It's a description of the whole new way of life that God expects us to live on our journey to heaven. A Christian is a God-fearing man or woman, boy or girl. He or she lives a consecrated life, quorum Deo, before the face of God. You see, the same eyes that have marked our iniquity are now watching over our lives as his children. And so we must live accordingly. The crew of that submarine I was talking about earlier, HMS Seal, were apparently a rather notorious rabble. The captain's biographer calls them, quote, one of the biggest collection of scallywags, that's what it says, scallywags that the submarine service ever put together. But you know what's interesting? In that hour of crisis, when they were in the depths, most of them were moved to join their captain in prayer to God, to cry out to God, And after their miraculous deliverance, several of those hardened sailors committed their lives to Christ. They led exemplary lives. Even a few who adamantly refused to join the prayer meeting later on came to faith in Christ. And this, by analogy, is what forgiveness does. It reaches into the depths. It raises you up. And then, out of gratitude and love for mercy received, dedicates its hands to serve God and live God-fearing lives of consecration to Him. Friends, fear without forgiveness is of the bondage-to-fear type. But forgiveness-bred fear is the reverent love and devotion of children to a father. So, 
A God-fearing life is the inevitable fruit of a forgiven soul. And thus, where there is no fear of God in your life, there can be no forgiveness. Notice, this is God's express purpose in the transaction. There is forgiveness so that you may be feared. That's what God wants. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your devotion. Is that what you're giving to him in your present life? The believer's depths, confession, forgiveness, fear. And next comes the believer's weight. The believer's weight in verses 5 and 6. He writes, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. Psalmist has ascended from the depths. God has heard his cry. He's now walking before the Lord Walking in the fear of the Lord, but supplication and prayer does not simply initiate the Christian life. You know, something you do when you're first saved and then it's done. No, 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 no. This is the very fabric of the Christian life. You don't just pray the sinner's prayer in a moment of desperation, and then once you're delivered, well, I'm okay now, so I'm going to go on living in my own strength. No. The Christian life is a life characterized by the soul's weight upon his Lord, which is really just another way of saying a life of expectant daily prayer and hungering for communion with God. The psalmist isn't waiting now for the forgiveness of God. He has that already. Rather, he is waiting for the God of forgiveness. Right? See the difference? He's waiting upon the God of forgiveness. The true saint doesn't just want God for what God can do for him when he's in a bind. No, he must have God for God's own sake. And this metaphor the psalmist uses of night Watchman is used to show the intensity of the believer's wait for his Lord. It is a yearning. These were guards on the battlements. You remember, boys and girls, this morning I talked about how your home is kind of like a castle, right? And you have these guards walking about the battlements. What are they doing? They're warning of approaching attack while the city sleeps, performing surveillance. I'm sure all of us here know what it is to have a bad night's sleep. Maybe you had a bad night's sleep at camp, even, possibly. But you know what it's like. You just can't get over. And eventually you just lie there awake, longing for the morning to come. Or perhaps some of you here have worked a night shift. Maybe some of you still do work uh, night shifts. I'm getting a few knowing glances here and there. You know what that's like. The hours drag by and you can't wait for morning when you can clock out and sink deep into your bed and find rest. Well, you see, spiritually speaking, that is the experience of the Christian. You're forgiven 
You fear God, but oh, how you long for closer communion with him. You want him more than anything. And in Jesus' words, you who are so often weary and burdened and heavy laden, come to him and he will give you rest. The watchman watches for the faintest glimmer of light over the horizon, for that gradual transition from pitch black to those deep blues and purples and the pinks and the yellows of the dawn until at last you have the glory of the sun rising. And you too are called to daily wait upon the Lord expectantly looking to him for comfort and rest. What do you know, my friends, by experience of the believer's Wait. Can you identify at all with the psalmist in Psalm 42 when he says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is that your experience? The believer's wait will not be disappointed. I wonder if you ever had an appointment you've been waiting for someone and you look at your watch and the minutes go by and eventually you realize that they've stood you up. You've waited and waited and finally you've given up, disappointed. The Lord will never stand you up. Sometimes he'll make you wait. But he will never stand you up because he is always on standby. He's always there. He, he stands by his promises. The psalmist says, in his word, I do hope. And we know that God's word will never fail. That's why the expectation of the believer's watch is firmly anchored to the believer's Bible. You pray the promises. And you wait. And you wait. And so the believer's ascent from the depths is accomplished by Christ, but is applied by the Spirit through the agency of the Word and prayer. These aren't just, you know, things Christians do. I'm a Christian now, I suppose. You should read my Bible. This is your life. And his continuance in the faith is also accomplished by the same Christ using the same means of grace. You wait upon the Lord in the means of grace when times are good and when times are bad, when you're going through a dark night of the soul and when you are experiencing times of refreshing. Psalm 119.49, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Again, I ask each one of you, are you waiting upon the Lord? Maybe you don't feel the closeness of his presence as you know you once did. Maybe some of you are are waiting upon him with some request and you've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, still waiting. Perhaps you're wrestling with some particular sinful habit 
and you feel defeated by that sinful habit, let me ask you, are you hoping in his word? Are you hoping in his word? As every watchman and every night shift worker will tell you, that sun will certainly come up. Even though it feels like an eternity in coming, just so the believers wait for his God will certainly be met. For surely as the sun comes up, so he will be found in his word. And if you want to meet God, that's where you're going to meet him. You're going to meet him in his word. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I do hope. The believers wait. And then briefly as we close, we come to the believers' hope. The believers' hope in the last two verses. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Notice how the psalm ends. The psalmist moves from the indicative to the imperative. He goes from from telling his own story, his own testimony, to telling us now to go to the same Lord for our ascent from the depths. And this is a word of counsel, of advice given to Israel as a whole. And this is the practical application of the psalm. He essentially says, I put my hope in the Lord and his word. So should you. So should you. We've seen in this psalm this evening God's evangelistic method. It is an ascent from the depths. This psalm tells you how to become a Christian. And if you're not a Christian this evening, you need to listen. Because that's what God is telling you. First, you must be made aware of the depths your sin has brought you into. That's verses 1 and 2. Next, you must cry out to God for deliverance from the depths, confessing your guilt and sin, trusting in Christ, lest God should mark your iniquities. That's in verse 3. And friend... You have a warrant to do this, you see, because there is forgiveness with God through the blood sacrifice of Christ who was marked for sinners' iniquities so that you might be marked as righteous in his sight. That's in verse 4. And you now get to live before God then with all due fear and reverence and wait upon him with expectation and hope through the means of grace the word and sacraments and prayer in verses 4 to 6. And again, if you don't know this personally this evening, then receive this free gift. That's what's being held out to you in this psalm. Do you know this gospel? I don't mean, do you have an intellectual understanding of the gospel? Many of you have had that since you were in diapers. What I mean is, has the Holy Spirit granted you repentance unto life, a deep felt sense of personal guilt and sin, a darkness that can be felt, 
Have you cried out to God yet in these depths to Jesus, asking him to be marked for your iniquities, to bear away all your sins on the cross? And are you walking in the fear of the Lord this evening? Are you living by faith, living to please God? If not, he bids you to do so tonight. To get right with God. And he shall redeem you from all your iniquities. I don't don't care how bad they are. Maybe some of you are living under the guilt of something in your past. And you say, it's too dark. The depths were too deep for Jesus to reach down. Trust me. Jesus was brought lower than any of us. There's no sin you've committed that he can't handle, that he can't forgive. Bring it to the cross. Lay it at Christ's feet and let it go. Let it go. And if you are a Christian this evening, this psalm ends with a challenge. And I want to leave you with this challenge. It's an evangelistic imperative. The believer's hope is meant to be shared with others. Because there are so, so many people we know, and they are still in the depths, aren't they? And you possess a life-giving message for them so that they too can ascend from the depths What incentives can we give to our world, our Meshach, as we return to it tomorrow from the oasis of this family camp? Well, the psalmist tells us, hope in the Lord. Cry to him from the depths and be saved. That's what we tell our unbelieving friends. We tell them that with the Lord there is mercy. This is the kind of God that we commend to our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family and colleagues. One who shows undeserved love even to his enemies as we are living proof. With him is abundant redemption. That's what we go from this place to tell our culture. His redemption is literally in the Hebrew plentiful. It is plentiful. It is sufficient for more than just you and me this evening. There's plenty of room in heaven for more. And finally, he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This God we commend to our friends. He is a God that has committed himself by covenant that not one of his elect will be lost. And how will he do it? Well, the psalmist, of course, looked forward in time to a future great act of redemption, a redeemer who was yet to come. But we, of course, live on the other side in the days of fulfillment. We live in the years Anno Domini, the years of our Lord And it is no longer for us, he shall redeem Israel. For us, it is, he has redeemed Israel. He has redeemed Israel from all his iniquities. So friends, we take with us from this conference the same gospel as King David. We point people 
to Jesus, who is the Redeemer from iniquity. May we each this evening find hope in Him on our life's journey. And as we sing these songs of the journey, may we think of Him. And may we also be able to testify that we have ascended from the depths by His almighty outstretched arm so that others too might share in this abundant redemption. Amen. Well, let us unite our hearts together in prayer. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you tonight for your word in which we hope We thank you again for these songs for the journey that you've given to us. And we thank you this evening for this great song for the forgiven. And Lord, for those of us this evening who are forgiven, those who have tasted of the misery of sin and cried out to you and have experienced that plenteous redemption, we thank you for your goodness to us And we ask, O Lord God, that you would help us to send forth this gospel into this culture of Meshach, this land of Kedar, this land of darkness in which we live. May you be pleased, O Lord, to continue to redeem the Israel of God from all their iniquities. Draw in your elect people and use the means that you have promised to bless. And Lord, we also pray this evening for those in our midst who are still in the depths. Lord, we would ask that you, even this night, would reach down with your powerful hand and save. Bring them up from the misery of their sin. Bring each one of them, O Lord, to set aside all distractions, all excuses they have made, and grant to them repentance unto life. Grant to them saving faith. Open their hearts to receive the gospel and to receive Jesus. And may they find in him an abundant redemption that washes away the guilt and the shame and the defilement, O Lord, with which their lives are stained. And grant them liberty in the gospel so that they might fear God and live lives of consecration to him. Lord, may it be so this evening. For we ask it in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.